I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Sign on the window says lonely. Sign on the door said no company allowed. Sign on the street says you don't own me. Sign on the porch says three's a crowd. Sign on the porch says three's a crowd. This is Bob Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly, and joining me to talk about Sign on the Window from 1970's New Morning is writer Allison Rapp. Hi, Allison. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for being on the show. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Before we get to the song, again, we're going to talk about, you know, I have to ask you, how did you become a fan? Oh my gosh, you know, it, I feel like I can never, there wasn't ever a time where Bob Dylan's music was, you know, not a part of my life. I almost feel like I was kind of just born with that soundtrack already playing. My dad was definitely the one who first, you know, introduced me to a lot of those bigger records, the bigger hits, things like, um, you know, I remember him playing a lot of Blonde on Blonde, a lot of Highway 61. I want to say that Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat was probably the first Dylan song that I heard when I was a kid, which maybe isn't the best song for like a little kid to understand, but <laughs> hey, you got to start somewhere, you know? Um, but I also remember him introducing me to some of the more contemporary things like Stop Off of Modern Times and that sort of thing. And then at the same time, I was also getting a lot of the band and the Traveling Wilburys and that whole kind of like Dylan sphere going on. So without him, I probably would have never gone on this Dylan journey. And then I think from there, you know, I moved to New York City four years ago and I started kind of automatically gravitating towards a lot of those usual Greenwich Village haunts that that Dylan and the rest of the gang were hanging out at. And luckily, you know, there's still a lot of that um, kind of hippy dippy like mentality going on there and a lot of those venues are still there luckily um so i kind of started to like explore new york a little bit through a dylan lens and going from there and you know i mean you know what it's like it's a rabbit hole (laughs) when it comes to dylan so that is how i ended up here where i am now in the dylan twitter verse and all that (laughs) that's uh the couple of times uh that i started going to new york after i became a fan of bob that was a big thing for me was going into like you're saying going to the places where i knew he had been yeah. standing on the spot where they shot the the record the album cover for freewheeling just that kind of thing of knowing he was in the same area was like very very powerful yeah uh, exactly you know? i mean that that neighborhood has obviously changed a lot there's a lot of different things that have cropped up and that kind of thing but it is pretty interesting to still think that you know these are the same streets the exact same streets that he was walking down and you know like the bitter end for example is still up and running and booking people every single night so that's always a really cool cool thing to go check out so when you got when you got to, when you started doing the deep dive as you were talking about like was there some particular era that really resonated with you more than others or was it all just like wow it's all awesome in its own different way Yeah, I mean, I think, and maybe this is partly because I was into the Traveling Wilburys, so I was kind of like already familiar with that era, but I started kind of gravitating towards a lot of the 80s records, like Infidels and, you know, that kind of thing. Also because I'm a really big Mark Knopfler fan. I love Dire Straits. Mm -hmm. So, like, I made that connection and I was like, oh my God, I recognize that guitar player. Like, that sounds great. And of course it was Mark Knopfler. So I kind of started gravitating into some of those records via him, which was an interesting way to do it. Um... And I know, you know, Mark Knopfler and his style is maybe not for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea per se, but I was really into that. And I kind of started moving in that direction because of him. 
Oh, that makes total sense. You can see making that jump yeah. to that kind of thing. I mean, that's yeah, that's a that's a sort of lateral move in terms of the type of music that you're getting into. So that's a that's really cool. So, have you seen Bob live yet? Oh my gosh, yes, I have seen Bob live. I've seen him now twice. I'm kind of giving away my age a little bit when I talk about this because I didn't see Dylan live until you know, in the grand scheme of Dylan's career, until relatively recently. The first time was in. 2017 at the Nassau Coliseum just outside the city and that was when Mavis Staples was the opener for those Mm -hmm. those shows and that was just an awesome time and then the last time uh, was in 2018 I mean really that wasn't all that long ago and that was at the Beacon Theater here in New York where I'm supposed to see him again in a couple weeks that's always a classic Dylan spot here. That was a residency he did. Didn't he do like five nights there or something like that? I don't think I he's ever that. done the Beacon Theater like just one night. I think if he comes, it's got to be at least, I mean, the last couple of times he's been at that theater, it's been at least four or five, six nights in a row, always kind of around Thanksgiving time. It's 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 like an annual thing. <laughs> That's great that you, you just mentioned that you got tickets for the next the next show. That's, I was going to ask him whether you uh, had got tickets because he's only visiting a certain area for right now. Um, and right. so, I mean, I got mine, so that's great. They're going to be able to, to see him again after a couple of years. Yeah. You know, I, well, you know, the second that I heard that the tour was launching, I definitely was not, not going to be there for sure. <laughs> and I really loved rough and rowdy ways so much. We, obvi- a lot of us spent so much time with that record through the pandemic. You know, we had a lot of time to process it. We had a lot of time to listen to it. We had a lot of time to sit with it. So I think now these shows are just going to be even more powerful for people. Absolutely. When you, when you saw him for the first time, uh, did you have that, that feeling that I've heard people talk about on the show that I've had is that you just, there he is. Yeah. You know, like, you know, he's a real person because of course you do, but there's something else going on in your head when you, that's the guy right there. (laughs) Very much so. I think he's this, such an enigmatic character, just generally that you see him and you're like, Am I, I'm sitting here right now, right? Like that, that's really, you know, it's this kind of surreal experience because you almost, you're right. Like you don't even necessarily think of him as this physical being when you're listening to the records and that kind of thing. And then suddenly you're sitting there and you're like, oh, he is real. He's right there. Yeah, that's that, that, that little guy over there is the guy that's yeah. met all these presidents and hung out with Beatles and did it. <laughs> it's just... And he's just right there on the stage. I know. And I also remember at that show, one of my favorite memories, I guess, I remember sitting near this guy who very clearly it was also his first Bob Dylan concert, but you could tell that he was like quite visibly and audibly distressed that like he could not figure out what songs were being played. And he was like kind of freaking out about it. He was like, I don't, what, what's happening or whatever. And I remember thinking, <laughs> can I talk to someone in charge? <laughs> yeah. Like what did I buy a ticket to? And I remember thinking like, everybody kind of has that moment. I feel like, you know, it, no matter how many times they've seen them live or anything, they all have to kind of go through this rite of passage where they're like, I don't really know what's going on. I don't know what song's playing, but oh, okay, now I get it. Like now we're here and it's this, you know, everybody has that moment with, with Dylan live. Yeah. It, it, I've, I've seen, I only go now with, with my friends that love them like I do, but I have seen some shows with people that were going just to go. And yeah. I'm, I'm in rapture. I'm enraptured, you know, and they're looking at me like, what, what are we, what, <laughs> like, what am I listening to? This, what, you know? And so it's like, you can't, I can't explain it. I know. Just listen, just listen. Maybe you'll get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say I once saw him in Boston and I found out later that I was staying in the same hotel that he was staying in. Oh my God. And, and, you know, I mean, I obviously, obviously did not have any interaction or didn't know anything, but, 
ever since then, I was like, oh, did I use the same ice machine or whatever? <laughs> like, I went down this crazy, like, oh, I was in the same lobby as him or whatever. Oh, you know. Whatever. Did you did you learn that after the fact? Or, yes. Or during, okay. After. Oh, oh, God. oh, good thing that it was yeah. after. Because if it had been before, I would have probably been done something stupid you know what i, mean? I don't but, i wouldn't uh, blame you for that i wouldn't blame you for that yeah, no. i would have been down there like looking in the hall like you know where's the soda <laughs> machine you know i was like oh no maybe bob's gonna buy and come down and buy a pepsi i'll just hang out it here could happen. yeah it could yeah. happen there is yeah, nothing. No. <laughs> so all right well that's fantastic i said um congratulations that you're gonna get to see him again like i said i'm i'm gonna be going uh about a month from now and i just i just can't wait you know i'm just so oh my excited. gosh no it's gonna be so exciting it's gonna be awesome so, all right. So let's talk about Sign on the Window, which, as I said, is, of course, from 1970s uh, New Morning. Uh, I, I read the opening uh, verse to it, and then the song continues on. Her and her boyfriend went to California. Her and her boyfriend don't change their tune. My best friend said, now, didn't I warn you? Brighton girls are like the moon. Brighton girls are like the moon. So why this song? Why, why, why did you want to talk about this song in particular, Allison? That's a great question. I I love New Morning, generally speaking. I love the whole album. I think it's a really, you know, relaxed, almost therapeutic kind of record as a whole. Um, but I think I picked this song in particular, again, because I spent a lot of time listening to this song through the pandemic. You know, when the 1970 box set came out earlier in the year, um, we all still had a lot of time on our hands, you know, and there was a lot of material to listen to. Um, at that point in time, you know, New York was still pretty locked down. There wasn't a whole lot going on. We couldn't really do much of anything. Um, so I spent a lot of time with my headphones in, you know, taking walks around the park near my apartment, like listening to a lot of this material. And the cool thing about Sign on the Window on that set is there's at least like five or six different versions of <laughs> yes, that. There are. On there. And I would like, you know, every, and every single one of them is slightly different than the last one. Um, and I just found it so interesting to go through each one of those versions and pick up the little nuances of what was different and what Dylan was trying out. So I spent a lot of time listening to the song. I think that, you know, of course, in the grand scheme of Dylan's catalog, you will find much more complicated, much more elaborate or dramatic songs. Um, and this one seems relatively simple, but I, I do think there's a lot, you know, going on in a short amount of time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's why I ended up picking this one out. And one of the things that I love so much about it is Dylan's piano playing just in mm. general. It's so, so sweet and light. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe typical uh, Dylan fans don't necessarily think of Dylan as this like piano master whiz or anything, but it's just such a simple melodic um, playing style. And I, I think it's so great to listen to. It seems when I first got new morning, I mean, a lot of the songs on that record are very happy, like very straightforward. Sure. happy songs if not for you and uh, the man and me and one more weekend and then this seems a lot more serious this seems a lot more you know kind of melancholy going on and obviously you know we'll talk about like what this song means to you and what it what what you feel like it it's about at least in your own head uh sometimes i get like an idea stuck in my head and even though i know that that's not what it is and it it really isn't even that in my own head I can't get the thought out of my head, which is unfortunate. And the <laughs> one line when he talks about threes a crowd, mm. that line, I remember reading that around this time, Dylan came home when he was living up in Woodstock. He came home one day and him and Sarah found a couple of hippies having sex in his bed. Really? Yeah. I never read that. Yeah. That's very interesting. Which is, I mean, from, from the outside, it, that's a funny story. If you're Bob, it's horrible. I mean, it's yeah. creepy. 
and weird and a complete vi- gross on top of it. <laughs> like it's just a complete violation of boundaries. But like I, ever since I heard that story, I think of that when I hear that line in the song, even though I know that's not what he's talking about. That's <laughs> clearly I mean, not what he's talking maybe. about. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say you could fully rule it out. I feel like maybe that was something that he, you know, thought of while he was writing the rest of the song. And he thought, oh, yeah, remember, remember that? Like that crazy incident, perhaps. I mean, that's so funny. I had never heard that before. <laughs> oh, it's just, I, I, I forget where I read it, but I just was like, ugh. Like, oh, come on, you know, leave the, leave the poor guy alone for Pete's sake. So, so, yeah. so what is it about this song that, that resonated uh, so much with you? Like I said, I love the other songs in New Morning, but they are a lot simpler. And again, it's nothing that, that there's anything wrong with that. But there seems to be, I've never been able to fully wrap my head around what is going on in this song. The Brighton Girls are like the moon. I was like, okay. But at the same time, it's it sticks out because it does, again, it seems so much more serious than what, is preceding it and the stuff that follows it. Right. It definitely has this much more melancholy, forlorn, you know, mood to the entire thing. And I think part of that is also, you know, going back to the 1970, you know, these versions, some of those earlier takes um, have this much more like rolling kind of groove to them. Um, And they sound a little bit more like what went to see the gypsy and man and me ended up sounding like with this kind of like rolling groove underneath it and and sign on the window didn't end up sounding like that so i think you know from a from an arrangement standpoint that's part of why it ends up sounding a little bit more serious and forlorn and that kind of thing but i'm glad you brought up that lyric about brighton girls are like the moon because i have spent hours thinking about that lyric in particular um because i mean for one thing we have no idea what brighton he is talking about like where specifically that is my mind, for whatever reason, goes to Brighton, England specifically. I mean, maybe that is where he's talking about. He was spending a lot of time, you know, through the late 60s touring England and that kind of thing. But he gives no indication of like where that actually is. So I love that little bit of air of mystery. Um, but then also, you know, in revisiting those early editions, again, he it changed the lyric from um, originally it was Brighton girls are all the same and then changed it to Brighton girls are like the moon. And I always thought that was such an interesting teeny tiny little switch because, you know, the first line Brighton girls are all the same almost has this sort of like put down ish air yes. about some way, you know, um, kind of like a shrugging off or what have you. And changing it to Brighton girls are like the moon is just so I mean, to me, comparing somebody to the moon is this kind of sweet romantic notion in a way, you know, like the moon is a really lovely kind of, uh, you know, character in our mythology and she changes a lot and she brightens and she fades and she waxes and wanes and, you know, she changes the tides and it's yes. this really, really powerful <laughs> comparison to make about somebody, you know, um, and it's, it's just, it's just that one word that flips. And I, I always find that lyric really really powerful i mean like what does it mean to be like the moon exactly i'm not sure i really know but it to me it's like it's kind of a sweet gesture yeah i'm glad you you brought that up that that lyrical change because yeah this song there the narrator at least to me it seems to be the the wronged party it maybe maybe uh and and that can be when you are the wronged party you can then be talking about the people who supposedly have wronged you and it can be it become it can become like a put down Kind of thing. Right. And, and you compare that, you know, with the line earlier, like you said, uh, you know, sign on the window says you don't own me. That's also kind of a pointed, you know, part of the part of the song. But you're right. Like it definitely it, it creates that juxtaposition between the two. The, that opening verse where it talks about the sign on the window, the sign on the door, the sign on the street, the sign on the porch. I find it interesting that he uses porch twice 
Everything mm-hmm. else has changed. You've got porch, porch is, is 12, although it's the same line, three's a crowd. But it, that always paints a, uh, again, a very evocative picture to me of somebody who is walked down the street to perhaps the home of their former partner. And they can tell from their vantage point that they're not welcome anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not a literal sign, but he can tell by what is what he sees through the window or can just tell from the way the house is or wherever he is that he's not wanted. And it's a, you know, it's a wonderfully sad and lonely idea uh, of this person sort of walking up and seeing like, Oh, I'm not wanted. And this idea, again, it it paints, it it tells a lot of a potential story in just a couple of lines, but the idea that the person on the inside is saying, you know, you don't own me. I've moved on. Mm-hmm. And we don't need, you know, I and whoever I'm with, we don't need you anymore. Three's a crowd. And again, it's an incredibly lonely image. And, you know, I try not to connect too much these songs to Bob Dylan's personal life because that's that's kind of not the point. And also mm-hmm. who can who can figure that anyway? And we don't know his personal life. But again, like I was talking about, these the, the songs on New Morning are, are generally very happy songs. And then this one... Seems like almost like where is this coming from? Unless he is just putting on someone else's clothes, and he, you know he does that all the time. But it, it it does feel like boy, who is this person that's so profoundly sad in this song when the other guy across the rest of these like eight other songs seems you know pretty pretty happy. Right. I mean, I guess maybe there's the possibility that it was something that he was revisiting after some time and perhaps it was you know something from a previous not era per se but a previous you know period in time moment in his life um but i completely agree i mean like the album starts off with if not for you which is the complete and total utter opposite of this whole entire message you're right i mean i guess that's another reason why i picked this song in particular is because it does stand out from the rest of the tracks on on this record absolutely I do. I said, I do love his piano playing. It really is. He's a really very good piano player. Yeah. Uh, pretty remarkable. I mean, he's on top of all the other skills that he's got. He's a really good piano player. It's like, yeah, you know. there's so many tiny details. I feel like in this song that just, I mean, the song's only three minutes long and it really does pack quite a lot in, in that amount of time. I love the kind of false key change he does in the bridge, you know, moving into like, looks like nothing but rain, you know, that, that sort of thing <laughs> he moves back down into the, the same key. You know, it's just such a clever little, bit and it's such a you know you can see it in your head so clearly you you mentioned the key changes is that something that you uh do are, are you a musician at all do you know the stuff because i've as i've mentioned on other episodes i don't know this stuff at all and i can't speak to it i know it, i can hear it but i can't verbalize it like you just did i mean i i, I do have a background in in music you know um i am i'm a dabbling musician i suppose i would say i'm not i'm certainly not on the level of some other people that are in in the, the dylan world but um yeah i mean i can recognize certain things like that but i i tend to think of those things in conjunction you know um with whatever's going on emotionally in the song you know for me it's not so much about like yes okay so there is a key change here or there's a this there or what have you um but how does that relate to what else is going on in the song you know lyrically emotionally that kind of thing um and i just think that bit in particular where he kind of teases us in the sense of going into maybe this new key maybe we're uplifting into something new and happier and then it goes back down into this you know mournful scene of main street being wet and hoping that it doesn't sleep and that kind of thing (laughs) i think it's a really clever 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 use of the arrangement definitely 
Yeah, I mean, in the third verse, as you just mentioned, nothing looks like a nothing but rain. Sure, I'm going to be wet tonight on Main Street. You hope that it don't sleep. It's, it's this poor miserable bastard is now wandering away from the 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 house. You know, he realizes the 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 person that he was interested in is gone, and now he's walking on a rain slicked street, and it's <laughs> it's like this so poor guy. It is, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's just just terrible. And then so then we get the the fourth verse, which seems to completely come out of nowhere. Mm. They build me a cabin in Utah, marry me a wife, catch rainbow trout, have a bunch of kids who call me pa. That must be what it's all about. That must be what it's all about. And I've heard, I've seen other people write about this, that this, um, this, this ending refrain seems a little less than convincing. It seems like somebody telling himself that that must be what it's all about. Not that's what it is all about. That must be what it's all about. Like he, the, the narrator doesn't have these things and he's telling himself, well, that's, that's clearly the key to life. And it almost seems like you're like, well, when I get X, I'll be happy. And yeah, that's I, always I, a dangerous, you know, kind of thing to set yourself up. Totally. I mean, I, I was thinking something similar. It almost, you're right. It almost seems like either somebody is kind of telling him that like, this is what you need to be happy. And this is what you need to be fulfilled in life. I almost sort of think like it's him poking fun of that kind of like super quiet uh you know domestic kind of style of life because he's painting this really really um simplistic rural almost stereotypical scene i mean a cabin in utah with trout fishing and kids who call him pa i mean that seems so seems like something off of the oregon trail or something like it's so (laughs) basic you know um and, and maybe it's not so much him poking fun at it but it's just this very dramatic stereotypical example of like quiet barn life and maybe I don't know it does seem like there is a portion of him at that period in time who maybe really really wanted that and really really yearned to like have that cabin in Utah and fish for drought and and live that kind of lifestyle um but you're right it does seem a bit extreme (laughs) for Bob Dylan you know I would imagine that uh if you're someone like him who can't turn off the fame that yeah, maybe living in a cabin in Utah so sound attractive. I will admit, to me, it sounds horrible. That's it. <laughs> it's like no, I don't want to do. I don't want to do any of that. We're talking about we're talking about 1970. We're talking about you know the exact years where he was really fed up with a lot of that media frenzy and the the craziness and the hoopla of it all. And so, you know, I can kind of see him sort of like getting to the end of his rope and being like, you know what, I'm just going to move to a cabin in Utah and fish for trout, and there that'll make everybody happy, including me. <laughs> It does, this is a little bit off the subject, but it does kind of remind me of like when you hear about some celebrity, you know, some rich, rich celebrity and you find out that, oh, they just, they want the simple life in Montana. And then like, (laughs) if you ever watch some new segment and you see what their house is in Montana, it's like, well, that's not exactly the simple life (laughs) because you have a compound. Like it's, you know. I know, like, Dylan actually do that? I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah, is he going to be out there chopping firewood? Uh, probably not. Yeah, but it's a, it's a really interesting way, because you're right, it, it completely, it does not match up with the prior verses at all, right. and it's a really interesting way to end the song. At the same time, this is, of course, what Bob was doing. Is this when he was making babies with his wife and kind of he doing this, living this yeah, sort of rural life a little bit? Exactly. He was that guy at home. He was the, you know, house husband, so to speak. Um, so, I mean, like, he can't, he's not really one to talk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it is a very, very strange ending to the song. And like, like I mentioned, I've never been able to really wrap my hands around what it all 
means. And again, what it even really all means to me, other than the line sort of jumping out at me and the, the vocal performance that he gives it um, is really beautiful. I mean, you talked about the, the key change, but his singing is really wonderfully expressive and warm. Um, yeah. the, 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 some of the other songs, again, while I like them, there's a slight, he's got kind of a rasp going on, but this one is very, very warm. And again, even though it's kind of a sad song in some ways, the warmth he brings to it feels very, it feels oddly comforting in its own way, at least when I listen to it. And again, part of it is the piano playing is so pretty. True, right. I, you know, I, I can't verify this and I'm not exactly sure if it's true or not, but I think I did read somewhere that he was sick with a cold like that week mm. during those recording sessions. And that might have something to do with why his voice sounds a little bit less um, edgier, so to speak, you know, on those recordings. That 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 might be part of it. Um, but I completely agree. I think it's that combination of his voice sounding like that. I mean, he sounds like he's right there at the microphone with like, you know, in front of his face. It combined with his really melodic piano playing that that just that whole thing put together is what makes this feel really really intimate and personal now you mentioned the other versions uh that he recorded again he tried to bunch of takes of this uh did you find any of the other ones to be particularly resonant or just more than oh okay these are nice variations but the it's the one on the new morning is still kind of your favorite yeah you know several of the renditions on the box set are just a little bit more the much less focus on the piano. Um, so I think he made the right choice to, to, you know, hone in on that a lot more. Um, and there's also, you know, heavier guitar work and there's kind of these guitar lines woven in between Dylan's vocal lines, which are really interesting. They're really cool to listen to, you know, as kind of a band, like working out the kinks in the studio, definitely. Um, but like I said, I think, you know, those versions ended up, they sound a lot more like like I said, like went to see the gypsy man and me that have this kind of like groove going to them almost. Um, and I think that if that was the way that sign on the window, the final version had ended up, I mean, that would have been fine, but it wouldn't have stood out as much amongst the other tracks as it ended up doing because, you know, on the final version, it's just so much more focused on that great piano part. Yeah. The, uh, the version on the another self portrait bootleg series with mm. all the overdubs, uh, that is, I, I think that is like comically, not the right way to go with that song. I thought <laughs> all great. of those extra, I was like, did they bring in Ron Spector? Like, was it Phil Spector to produce this? Like, probably. I, oh Lord. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, it's got that same vocal track and then all of these other music. And it almost feels like the song, again, the song feels so quiet and so intimate. And then all of a sudden you hear like these horns coming in. You're almost like, wait, where did this come? Who are these people? Who who wanted to in the studio? For what reason? Yeah, like what is this doing here? Yeah. Oh Lord, I was like, I I mean, again, nice for them to experiment with it, but I'm glad that you know Bob eventually was like, no, 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 let's just do the the stripped out. Version. No, let's let's keep it simple. Yeah, it benefits from that absolutely. Not that the the earlier versions are are def, you know, they're they're great. They're really really wonderful to listen to. But I think he made the right choice in in you know stripping it down a little bit more. Yeah. Now, uh, live wise, zero. This has never been performed, never been performed live. Very frustrating because I think this is a a particularly beautiful song. It's been covered, of you know, not a you know compared to say Mr. Tambourine Man, not a lot, but it's been covered multiple times by renowned artists. And so this this song obviously has has had a life outside of New Morning, uh, but it's uh, considering how much he's been playing the piano in the last couple of years. Um, right. It's disappointing to think that this song has never gotten a tryout, but no, it's on New Morning and that's it. 
I was thinking something similar. I think this would be really, really interesting to play live. I think he could totally reimagine this in, in a way that would be really pleasing to people. You're right. I hadn't even thought about the idea that he is playing a lot more piano on these tours and now would be a perfect opportunity to do that. And, you know, it could be uh, lengthened out quite a bit more. It could be expanded. There could be some sort of like, I don't know what he would do with that bridge now. Um, and I also feel like, um, you know, going back to what you said about his vocal feeling really warm and, and intimate and that kind of thing. I think that right now would be kind of a good time. He's in kind of this like same vocal pocket where it would fit really nicely um, and sound really great live. New Morning as a record really doesn't get any live play. Uh, no. You know, he just, it seems like it, again, I'm sure he's proud of it in one way or the other, but it really, I mean, he's, he has pulled out some songs from it, if not for you as been done in concert and things like that but for the most part that record just he just is nothing that he pulls from which is a shame because there's a lot of great songs on it yeah there's a lot of great songs and there's a lot of great songs that he could do you know with a band and especially with the people that he's got playing with him you know these days i think they could do a really good job with some of those songs so it is a little bit unfortunate i mean who you never say never you never know what he's gonna pull out this tour or anything like that um but yeah i mean definitely when to see the gypsy would sound really great live. Mm. Um, it, it, I think a lot of those tracks would be really, really neat to see on a stage. So the the one use of this song in the popular culture that I had to mention because I can literally remember the moment I heard it was it was used on an episode of Friends, of all things. Uh, and I I don't did you watch that show? Uh, I mean, did, did you ever watch it, or did, is it not something that you ever got into? I mean, I I watched some of it, but I was never like you know I was not a fanatic, gotcha. shall we say? It was it it came uh, it came out right at the right time for me. I was in my tw- I, I'm the same age as all those characters essentially now, and so it came along at the right time. And I watched every episode. I watched the whole ten years, and I've seen it multiple times. I watched it when it aired. And so it was, you know, it was kind of a big show at the time. And so in the season eight, episode 24, there is this uh, plot line where uh, Rachel has just given birth to Ross's baby. And Joey, at the same time, is having romantic feelings for Rachel. And due to some, some uh, you know, very sitcom comically misunderstood motivations, Joey finds a wedding ring opens the box. Rachel thinks that Joey is proposing and she agrees to his proposal. And it's the end of the season and the end of the episode. And right at that moment, uh, I remember watching the show when it aired and right at that moment, you hear the little piano tinkling come in and I didn't even need to hear the first word. The minute I heard the doing it, I was like, huh, (laughs) you know, they're using a Bob Dylan song on friends and the rest of the episode, it only has about like another 30 seconds, plays out to this song. You hear Bob sing and it ends with it ends with the, the first it ends with this shot of Ross coming into the room knowing, oh, my God, there's going to be a bunch of trouble. And it ends with over the credits. You hear Bob singing sign on the port says three's a crowd. And I'm assuming they licensed it just for that line. Just for because of the fact that now there's going to be this, you know, complication between Ross and Rachel. You got Joey involved. That's why they did it. But I was shocked because now we hear Bob Dylan songs on a lot of places. We see them on television a lot more, commercials. But this was still unusual. And I was shocked that they would kind of spend the money to use a Bob Dylan song uh, in a friend's. But I was so, like, it's such a strange thing. It's like, it's not, you know, 
Bob Dylan is like world famous, but I still feel weirdly like he's mine in some weird way. And like that only I know about his, it doesn't make any sense, but to hear an obscure song of his on friends was really shocking. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I was charmed by the fact that somebody on the friend staff liked this song enough to go and spend the money to get it. Somebody on the friend staff knew that deep cut and was like, yes, we need to have that at the end of the episode. That's like, I would love to know whoever that person was, like how somebody brought that to the table and was like, no, we need to have this song at the end, right? Oh my gosh, that's such an interesting little, like not at all a song that I would expect to be in the end credits of of a friend's episode. Yeah, it was, I remember I was just blown away by it. I was just like, and yeah, you have to wonder like when they pitched it to the, whoever it was, they probably, you know, checked with Bob's office and they were like, ouch, that costs a lot. Well, True. we need it though. We're friends. We've got a lot of money. <laughs> we That's or perhaps it, you know, Bob's office was like, really, you want to use sign on the window for that, <laughs> for that episode, you know, but Hey, Oh my God. That's so interesting. I, I, I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't been used in, in other things. I feel like it is, you know, something that could be a little bit versatile in terms of being used in cinema and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it. It's a beautiful tune. And I, I will say this about uh, this song in particular. There's something about the phrase, sign on the window, which without being, you know, I, again, I don't exactly, I don't exactly know what it means because again, he's talking about sign on the window. It seems to be metaphorical. It's not a literal sign on a window. Um, but uh, there is a, uh, there's an apartment building uh, not that far from, uh, from where I'm living now that uh, suffice it to say was, was, was the the um a, a place of big import to my life when I was younger let's put it that way <laughs> it's, it was a significant it was a significant location and the person that uh, I was I, I shared that space with is gone they're not there anymore and they've been out of my life for a long time but that building is still there and mm-hmm. that apartment is still there it's still and you know every once in a blue moon i have a uh, no pun intended i brighten girls like the moon once in a while i have the need to drive by it yes it's not that far from the neighborhood and i can't i will tell you every time i drive by that building i hear this song in my head this is i hear the tinkling of the piano and you hear bob's it's just and it's now it's like Pavlovian. I, it's it's so <laughs> the, the the neural pathway is so buried into my brain that that's what I hear, and I don't even exactly know what that all means, really. But it yeah. it's set. It's just it's never going to get dislodged now. I I might start doing the same thing. That that's <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just something that you're right. He was using that as more of a metaphorical, you know, kind of instant, but it, it's so interesting how uh, he's able to turn that whole thing into something that suddenly becomes a bit bigger and, and it, it lodges in your brain, like you said, and gets tied to certain people, even though those people might not have any sort of, you know, like connection or anything at all to the song. Have you, have you had that experience where there's some, either whether it's Dylan songs or some other, I guess other kinds of music where you see, you see something and it triggers a song in your head, even though, there's no real connection there. You're just kind of like when you're in your brain, you're like, what? Why? All right. It's, it just, yeah. It just or, is. Or it'll happen the other way around, you know, like 
the song will come on and then suddenly, you know, like wherever I am, if I'm in the car, if I'm on the train or like whatever, like then suddenly I'll be like, oh, I remember specifically, you know, walking down this avenue when that song was doing this and so-and-so was saying this to me and so-and-so was breaking up with me here and that kind of thing, you know, and it, it's very much a two-way street in that respect, without a doubt. And I think, you know, especially with, with Dylan in particular, who has always written in this very, you know, um, tangible, like kind of concrete style with a lot of details about what's going on around him, even if it is kind of a metaphorical sense. Um, you know, he's very specific about sign on the window, sign on the door, sign on the porch. You know, it's a very specific image to make in your mind. Um, you might not have any experience with whatever door or porch he's talking about, but you might have a different door or porch um, that resonates clearly in, in your mind. And it's still just as, you know, much of a trigger, I suppose, like in your own brain as it is in his. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you uh, have, you know, mess around with music in sort of an amateur way. Have you ever tried to write a song? Have you ever done anything like that? Yes, I have. I, okay. I've, you know, I, I, I dabble. I would use the word dabble as, as strongly as I possibly can. <laughs> it's, you know, it can be really hard. It can also be really easy um, depending on what day of the week it is and how much coffee I've had and what's going on and who's hurt me that week. <laughs> you know, um, I certainly, you know, Dylan has always been a huge inspiration as he is for lots of songwriters around the world because, um, you know, he holds that gold standard of like what it means to put a sentence and put one word in front of the other or behind one another, how you can craft that sentence from start to finish um, within a phrase and have it make the most impact you know um that is a lot easier said than done without a doubt <laughs> well the, the reason i ask is because i i have never tried to write a song again i would not even know where to wouldn't even know where to begin yeah but the one of the things i think i know the reason i couldn't do it well and this is one of these songs that makes me think of it, is that bob is so willing and so ready in fact eager to not nail everything down and explain it for you Right. And I think I would always feel the need to be like, well, that doesn't, that line doesn't make any sense. And that I have to change that to something more understandable. And of course that probably would reduce the, 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 uh, the, the, reduce the um, kind of the, the effectiveness of the song because you are kind of nailing it down here. Sure. You know, this song is seems so simple and it seems to be conveying a mood. And then the fourth verse just takes you out of completely, you know, in a completely different direction. You've got this line about the bright and girls like the moon, which is sort of like figure it out for yourself. He's able mm -hmm. to just say, you know what, you're going to fill in these spaces yourself. And that's going to make this song resonate as opposed to if I just explained it all for you. And I think I would just constantly fall into that trap. So, but he's obviously quite, you know, he's quite comfortable doing that and allowing his audience to sort of lean in and figure it out for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that Dylan, for the most part, you know, considered himself a, a poet first above anything else, you know, and that, that's a huge part of the reason why he, he wrote like that. But I definitely, you know, I fall into that trap all the time of, of, you know, writing a song and thinking, like, I have to make this super specific and super, you know, truthful and authentic and like, this has to have actually happened or whatever, that kind of thing. Um, and it's like, no, you can compare somebody to the moon. Who cares what that means? Who cares what it actually is to be compared to the moon? Um, and who cares if you're writing about something completely and utterly untruthful, really? I mean, we all know that <laughs> that Dylan has plenty of lyrics like that, you know? Um, so you're right. And and also, you know, even beyond lyrically, I think structurally, uh, he kind of cha has, you know, changed the game specifically. I think of a song like... Um, 
you know, positively fourth street that doesn't have any chorus at all. It's just verse <laughs> after verse after verse. And, you know, that's something that a lot of songwriters would, would shy away from. And even here in sign on the window, you're only talking about a couple of verses, a little bit of a bridge, not even really a full bridge. Um, you know, it's just, there's nothing traditional about that structure and it can be hard to break away from that as a songwriter. But like you say, Dylan just does it and doesn't really bat an eye doing it. I guess when you've written 500 songs, you know, you get, <laughs> you kind of, you kind of got to switch it up. Yeah. yeah. I do whatever I want. And by the, again, by 1970 and, you know, uh, amazing again to think about, I was doing, I did a little bit of research about, you know, the recording of this record and, for an album that sounds and and again I hate to use this term because to me any making any music is like alchemy it's just impossible but New Morning sounds the songs sound relatively straight ahead yeah and if you look at the recording I mean this this album took a lot of time I mean he spent a lot of time on it and initially there was this mix where it was going to be kind of half covers half originals. And then that that sort of balance kept changing until eventually it just became all originals. But there was, a, 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 according to uh, Clinton Halen's book, The Recording Sessions, he talks about that at one point there was a version put together by Al Cooper who mm-hmm. helped work on this record that it was called Al's Mix. And this song was not even on the mix. It was mm-hmm. not on it at all. And, and instead it was half covers. And that's one of those things. Well, first of all, thank goodness they didn't persevere with that mix. But I mean, it seems it seems amazing to think that this song would not have made it over some of the covers that ended up on like the Dylan record from 1973. Like, how could anybody hear this and think, no, this one's not going to? I mean, we know Bob has a lifetime of that, but True. it seems amazing to think that they didn't know. No, this has got to be on the record. I don't know. Maybe they thought it was too too depressing, a little bit too, you know, down in the dumps for, for that, you know, with that narrator character as we were talking about having this kind of really down moment or oh, who knows. But I will say that, you know, some of those covers, um, you know, there are some examples of that on the 1970 box set. So I can kind of understand why, you know, they might gravitate towards some of those because they're great. Like they're really, really interesting to hear and hearing Dylan sing them specifically um, is is quite magical. But I, you're right. I can't believe that something like this would get passed up especially you know putting it against the rest of the songs that did end up on new morning it just seems like it fits in so nicely i can't imagine the record without it absolutely that's a good place to stop it that's a great place to stop it they can't imagine this record uh, without it so so allison okay before we wrap up here i you know i have to ask you the question i've been asking everybody uh as we get closer uh to the show that you're going to see somehow bob reads some of your pieces he <laughs> likes what he likes what he likes what he read Right. And he reaches out to you. <laughs> he oh, says boy. in this fantasy world here, he reaches <laughs> out to you and he says, all right, Allison, I can, I'm going to open with whatever song you want to hear me open with. So lay it on me, Allison. What song would you want to hear Bob open the concert with? Any, again, anything is up for grabs. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> can I have a couple different answers? This is hard. I mean, I, I guess my, my, my first thought is I would love to hear, sign on the window i think that would be like the perfect way to start something off just because we talked about it you know some Um, crazy rocked up version of sign on the window yeah but i also you know if we're talking like um rough and rowdy ways i really want to hear i just want to hear i contain multitudes live like that is the moment (laughs) i feel like it's going to hold so much more weight you know live than it did on the record and it's just going to be this moment of like (sighs) 
kind of thing going on. But I, I gotta say, I have been really, really, really into infidels lately. So I want to hear either License to Kill or Don't Fall Apart on Me Tonight. And I just want it to be the full band, like going for it. Um, you know, we're back in New York, baby, kind of attitude. <laughs> so I, that was not a very concise answer. But I, I, there's so many things I want to hear. Those are all good choices. Again, there there are no bad choices. Everybody can just pick whatever. Everybody's got their own particular thing. I license to kill would be amazing to hear. That would yeah. be really amazing. Again, all those songs off Intel's, but license to kill would be really great. But so, all right, this is, those are all good answers, Allison. I mean, uh, you know, uh, let, let me let me ask you this as we wrap up here. So, so you write piece. You know, you're a writer. You're a journalist. You write in. You know, you do interviews with people. You write pieces. Obviously, if given the opportunity to interview Bob, you would do it because you're not going to turn that down. I don't think anybody would. But at the same time, would it give you some pause actually getting to meet the guy? Do you do or or do you feel like no, no, no? You would in this context, you'd be sort of on a professional level, and it would be slightly different. Well, you know, they say don't meet your heroes. It, It it changes everything for you, and I feel like. You know, there, there's almost this, I have to be very careful in my line of work to, you know, separate the, the journalist, the music journalist part of me from the fan part of me. But also at the same time, I mean, the music fan part of me is what made me a music journalist. You know, those those people are very much one and the same. It would be a dream come true to sit down and talk with Bob Dylan, but I feel like, you know, there, there would be a sense of... Um, yeah, I, I would be very nervous. I'm like getting nervous thinking about it right now. <laughs> possibility, you know. I th- I think now, especially as he's moved into this this different you know era of of you know this part of his career, I think it would be really nice to just talk about like the future and what's going on now. I don't really have as much interest in in you know digging backwards and trying to get the answers to all of these like lost questions and stuff like that. I'm not really interested in that. Um, I'm much more interested in kind of just learning, like, you know, what are you listening to now? Like, what does your life look like now after all of this insanity has already happened? Um, and I'm just so glad that he's still out there doing it. So yeah, I think it would be really intimidating. I would be petrified. Um, (laughs) but I don't know. I'm pretty easy to talk to. I think, I think I could do it. (laughs) First of all, I agree with that sentiment. And then, yeah, that, that is probably the kind of interview that Bob would want would be to talk about the future because he's very focused on the future. He doesn't want to talk about, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man or whatever blowing in the wind. He wants to talk about he's living in the present. So, you know, never say never, Allison. You never know. You never know. We'll see. <laughs> so, well, uh, Allison, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, again, we, we were talking back and forth for a little while and I've been wanting to have you on the show. So thank you so much for stopping by. I very much appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. So why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at AllisonRap22. That is where I tweet all of my crazy opinions about Bob Dylan and other such things. Um, and I write for Ultimate Classic Rock, so you can also find a lot of my pieces there. We will definitely be talking about Bob Dylan and lots of other Bob Dylan-related topics in the next couple of weeks when he hits the tour. Um, so yeah, that's how you can find me. Hit me up. Very exciting, everybody. You you heard her. So, of course, this show you can find all the back episodes on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Find Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krug, George Doherty, and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. That's going to do it, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you later. Bye. Oh, wait.
you will what I do without you. Okay. Mm. You don't have to worry about that, okay? Oh, honey, could you grab me my other box of tissues? They're right on that chair under Ross's coat. Sure. 